Good morning, Cross Point Pineda. It's good to be back. It's good to have uh, more than a few hours' notice this time. <laughs> I bring uh, greetings and much love from Cross Point Cape. And we pray for you guys often and appreciate your sending of us. Uh, for those of you whom I haven't met, uh, my name is Matt Hardy. Um, my family and I attended this congregation for a long time, from the beginning up seven, eight years, something like that, and served as different roles as elders and um, CP Kids Director, and with my wife. And it's good to be back and see so many familiar, friendly faces. Um, and again, we are very thankful for the, for the prayers we know are, are uttered from this very pulpit uh, very often for us. I hope this journey through Mark has been as profitable for you as it has been for me. I found it very beneficial. Um, today we're going to continue in Mark, and we're going to do something a little bit different uh, for us. And um, we're going to look at a section of Scripture we've already looked at, but with a different focus. We're going to look at Mark 11, 12 through 25. And like I said... We discussed the fig tree uh, last week, and we're going to discuss it again this week. Mark uses a literary device called a, a Markian sandwich, where she takes three different, three different things and he kind of puts them together in, in one unit. To, and it's usually for a purpose. He's, he's using what he's encapsulating to describe the other thing. So in this case, the, the fig tree would be the bread. Right? The fig tree surrounds the story of the temple, and the temple would be the meat. And that's not to say that the temple is more important. The meat isn't necessarily more important unless you ask Jeremiah. <laughs> but the, it wouldn't be a sandwich without bread either, right? So, so I want to keep that in mind. The fig tree is helping us to interpret the temple. So keep that in mind as we make our way through the text today. This account of the cleansing of the temple is one of three accounts in the Gospels of... Um, of Christ, of telling us the cleansing of the temple. So it's important. It's here for us to hear. There is an account in John of the cleansing of the temple as well, but most people agree that is actually earlier in Jesus's ministry. The one famous for when he walks in and makes a whip, right? That's actually the beginning of his ministry. The other three accounts take place at the end of his ministry, and that's what we're talking about today. The section, the section of scripture, you may have heard it before. Um, you may have seen it before. Um, often brought up as uh, at a men's retreat, perhaps as a, as a state, as a symbol, or as a idea of how we can be righteously anger, angry, right? Or what righteous anger looks like, right? Um, it's a call for men to man up, flip some tables, and make a whip, right? Um, I hope what we see today, though is something that's much more beautiful than that. I don't believe that's why we have this story. And if you hang with me through this sermon, I think we'll see something much more important than how to be angry well. Join me in prayer. God, I echo my brother James's request that you would open our eyes or that you would open our ears To scripture we may have just heard, Lord, to, to something we know well, Lord, that you would use your word effectively. 
Lord, that you would use it to produce in us fruit, your fruit, fruit of the Spirit, Lord, that you would, that you would work in us, Lord, that you would provide conviction where needed, assurance where needed, that your word would be a two-edged sword and a soothing balm. I pray that I'm able to step out of the way, Lord, that your word would work on its own, clearly and effectively, as you say it will. We rest in that promise. We trust in that promise. And be with us today as we look into your scriptures. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we start in verse 12. Jesus curses the fig tree. It says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. Right? So he sees a fig tree, a showy fig tree. It's got leaves out. It says, I have fruit. Because when a fig tree has leaves out, it should have fruit, even if it's not the season for figs. Right? So this fig tree is saying one thing from a distance. It's saying, I'm going to satisfy your hunger. And Jesus is hungry, so he walks up expectantly to the tree. But what does he find? He finds hypocrisy, right? The tree was lying. It says, I have fruit. The symbol of the leaves say, I have fruit. But in, clo- in, in closer inspection, there's no fruit. So what does Jesus do? He curses the fig tree, right? And this is a problem, for a lot of people. This is a problem for a lot of scholars. So much so that some would argue that maybe this story doesn't even belong, right? How did this story sneak into the Gospels, right? We've seen Jesus do miracles throughout Mark, miracles of healing and restorative and uplifting and upbuilding, right? What is this miracle? This miracle is of a cursing, right? A cursing of a tree. What did the poor tree do, right? Why is, why is Jesus behaving this way? It doesn't, it doesn't fit our idea, maybe, even of who Jesus is. Jesus looks like he's maybe ill-tempered, like, I didn't get my fruit. You're not giving fruit to anyone else ever again, right? Like a snap decision. But we're going to find out that this is a piece of who Jesus is, right? And it may make us uncomfortable And it may be something that we don't like to think about. We like to think about Jesus, meek and mild, the lamb who heals people who are sick and restores hearing. We don't like to think Jesus, judge and lion, right? We don't don't like to think about that. That makes us uncomfortable. But again, hang with me, and I I think we're going to see this is actually good news, right? There's a warning in there, but there's good news as well. So we, we quickly jump back into, and we see Jesus is coming back to the temple. In verse 11, a little further up, we see when Jesus first arrives into town, he goes to the temple, he looks around, and he leaves because it was late. They leave town, they go back to Bethany. Right now he's on his way back to the temple. I want to tell you a little bit about this temple. This temple is impressive. 
This temple is massive. This temple is busy, and this temple is holy. Right? Herod took it upon himself to build the temple. I think partly to his own glory, he built it so large. And it is very large. He literally reshaped the landscape around Jerusalem. He filled in valleys, and he flattened mountains, and he built up around Mount Moriah. He built up these giant walls that would make a big square base, even with the top of the mountain. And he filled it in with dirt. And this is massive undertaking. Stones weighing hundreds of, of tons built and put in there, changing everything around it. Josephus, uh, the, a Jewish historian of the time, had this to say just about the retaining wall. He said, it is the most prodigious work that it was ever heard of by a man. This is the retaining wall that holds the dirt, that holds the foundations of the temple. Where Jesus would have walked into the temple, this giant rectangle, right? he would have walked into one of the gates and it would have led to the court of the Gentiles. Now the court of the Gentiles in itself, inside the walls of the temple, was 33 acres. Right? That's how big the temple was. 33 acres inside this court of the Gentiles. Right? And this should raise a question. Why does a Jewish temple have a 33-acre court of the Gentiles? It doesn't make sense. It's not something you see in a lot of other religions. Most temples are dedicated to the God and the people whom they serve. Well, this is actually a long-standing scriptural mandate from way back, from Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. If you want to turn there, we're going to read from it. Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. You see, the the Lord is decreeing this very court. The Lord is decreeing his desire for the foreigner to come to him. In verse 3, 56.3, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Right? This is good news for us Gentiles. Right? Long ago, the Lord decreed that he would gather in not just his chosen people, but foreigners and outcasts. And he would provide them a place. And this is the purpose of the court of the Gentiles. This is the place for the Gentiles to come and to pray and to be counted among his people. But we're going to see the court of the Gentiles has become like the fig tree. It looks good. The leaves are out. But when we inspect it closer, there's no fruit. Right? 
This temple was busy, very busy. There's estimates of up to two million people making a pilgrimage in a year, mainly in a week, coming into this temple. There's records of 250,000 lambs being purchased and sacrificed in one week in the space of this temple. And it's full of all kinds of animals, not just lambs. And it's full of merchants, and it's full of money changers. Right? There's a lot going on. It's like the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in the midst of a farm. Right? <laughs> Chaos. This temple is also a holy place. This temple is holy ground. This temple was built on the same site as the temple of Solomon was built on. And there was a section of Herod's temple, the second temple, called the Royal Porch that was on the south side of the temple. This was the site of Solomon's temple that was destroyed. And this had been holy ground for thousands of years, for a thousand years, ever since King Solomon finished his great prayer in 2 Chronicles 7. And the glory of the Lord so filled that temple that the priests could not enter, and all of Israel knelt on the pavement outside as they saw the fire of the glory, fire of glory descend on the temple. It was in this spot, in this very spot. It was in this very spot 750 years ago where Isaiah, mourning the death of Uzziah, was caught up in a vision of the sovereign Lord, majestically enthroned, and his train filling the throne room. In Isaiah 6.3, this is where we get the woe is me. This is Isaiah's vision. It happens right in this royal porch on the south side of this temple. This temple was a holy place. And so this is, this is what Jesus is walking into, right? He approaches this massive, busy, holy temple. And from a distance, everything seems okay. He entered this massive court, right? I'm sure the sounds, the smells of the, all the people and the animals would have been overwhelming, right? What does he do first? We read on, it says, And they came to the temple, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Right? So that's what he does first. He starts flipping tables and throwing chairs. Right? He even yells at people who were taking shortcuts through the temple. So why does he do this? At first glance, when you study... Most of the things that were going on weren't unexpected or bad things, right? Commerce took place near the temple. It traditionally took outside of the temple. Money changers were required because there was a mandate that Jewish males over 20 provide half a shekel, which is about, which I looked up was about $50 once a year to the temple. But the temple required it to be in the temple's coin, which was a Tyrian shekel. So people came from all over, they would bring their currency and exchange it. So money changes were needed. Right? There was even allowed to be a small fee for changing money. People selling pigeons and other animals was a long-standing practice. When you're coming in from 300 miles out on your horse and donkey, it's not always easy to bring a spotless lamb, to bring a perfect pigeon, to bring a pure white dove that might be accepted by the priests. So often people would come, purchase an animal to sacrifice there, and offer it at the altar. So a lot of these things that were happening on the surface weren't bad things. 
But it's on inspection again. When we get close, that's when we see what was wrong. All this had moved inside the court of the Gentiles. Right? That's not where it belongs. All this activity should not have been happening inside the court of the Gentiles. The problem with the money changing was that they weren't using the small approved fee. They were using massive fees. Right? They were ripping people off. The problem with selling the pigeons was the same. Some records say the pigeons went up in price almost 16 times. So if they were a quarter, now they were $4 during, during Passover week. Right? They were ripping people off. For the people walking through, for the people taking shortcuts that Jesus rebukes, that's actually against the mandate in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish law. It says you can't use the temple as a shortcut. Again, this is holy ground. This is the symbol of God's presence in the world. This shouldn't be used to get to point A to point B faster. This shouldn't be used to rip people off. Right? So all these things are bad enough. All these things were, I'm sure, enough to cause righteous anger in Christ. And we see in his teaching, though, he goes into what his issue is. And he, and he says in his teaching in verse 17, he says, And then he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And we know it is written. We just read it in Isaiah 56, right? In verse 7, it says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, speaking of the foreigners, will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Right? The chief priests, the Jewish leaders of the time, had turned this court of the Gentiles into a circus. Right? Into chaos. Can you imagine the pilgrimage? How hard it must have been to come from such a distance at this time. Pack up your family and get the donkey and maybe a cart and Scrape up the money that you needed to offer and, and make your way to the temple. And when you come to the temple and you come to this court that was built for you, that was mandated a thousand years ago, and there's money changers ripping you off, and you go to buy an animal and you get ripped off, and you try to pray, but there's 200,000 people doing commerce in the court. How easy would it be to pray? How easy would it be to make that a house of prayer? Near impossible, I would argue. Right? And that's what they were created. They had created this chaotic, this, this circus of events going on. They had created something that was fruitless, right? There was a common belief at the time that when the Messiah came, he would cleanse the temple. Now, the belief among many of the Jews was that he would cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. Right? Let's get things right here and get these Gentiles out of our temple. No, that's not. They missed the point completely, as we so, do, as we so often do ourselves. But they missed the point of, of what the court was for and what was going on. If we read on in 17, he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers? Right? 
So not only is it not a house of prayer, it is a house for robbers. And he's quoting a different scripture here. He's quoting Jeremiah 7.11. And Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. He was warning Israel at this time where this quote is taken from. And he's telling them, yes, you have the temple in Jerusalem. But don't put hope in that. That doesn't mean you can go and sin freely. That doesn't mean you can behave however you want and the Lord will not judge you. He's telling them, if you continue in your sinful ways, even though you have the temple here, God is going to judge you. God will not hold back even the Babylonians from coming and taking you out, removing you and removing the temple. This is what he's quoting when he says, it's a den of robbers. He's reminding them what, what can happen. This holy place, this place of what should have been worship for the world, was turned into a den of robbers. And Jesus walked into the court, and I don't think his goal was to keep his frustration quiet, right? Now, this is a massive court, so obviously he wasn't going to cleanse the whole thing, right? But he walks in and throws a table and throws a chair and starts preaching and starts quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah, teaching the people. This draws attention, and we can quickly see in verse 18, it says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Right? He wasn't whispering. I think they heard it on purpose. Jesus probably was yelling it. Right? He was speaking to them as much or more than he was speaking to the people that he was flipping their tables. He was speaking to the religious leaders at the time. And their response is, they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. We often see in scripture, the religious leaders are more afraid of people than of God. Um, it should not be. They were seeking a way to destroy him. With the, with the way Mark writes, sometimes it's condensed. Sometimes we don't get a, a full picture. He takes big stories and he squishes them down, or he takes long timelines and stretches them out because he's telling us a story. One of the things we do know in, in this account from Luke is that Jesus was teaching daily. He didn't go and teach once. He was teaching in the temple, which I'm sure further upset the, the, the uh, religious elite there. Some scholars would even say that this is Jesus was continuing to teach on Jeremiah, right? That he brought up what he had said earlier in, in John when he went to the first time to the temple, which is, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Should only further anger the religious elite. But regardless of what Jesus taught or how many times he taught it, it inspired astonishment and it inspired murder. When we encounter Jesus, when we truly encounter Jesus, we're forced to make a decision. Tim, Queller ha Tim Keller has this quote, either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him, right? We get a choice. What are we going to do with this Jesus that we meet? 
The one thing you can't do is say, what an interesting guy. Right? We don't have that option. Look, he preached, and the reactions were astonishment and murder. We're going to crown him or we're going to kill him. And I think Jesus knew the chief priests weren't going to crown him. Right? I think he knew what was going to happen. And then they leave. Right? They leave the temple. They go back to Bethany. I'm sure it was an interesting walk back conversation with the disciples. And the next morning, they walk back. And they walk the same path they had walked previously when they saw the fig tree. And Peter, who's never afraid to speak, says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So we're in verse 21. And Jesus, never afraid to give a confusing answer, says, have faith in God. The fig tree is withered. Have faith in God. Right? I would have been confused. What? No, the, the tree. No, have faith in God was, was his answer. This tree, this tree has been made worthless. It's, it says it's withered from its roots. It's completely destroyed. And Jesus says, have faith in God. This only makes sense when we consider that whole sandwich that I was talking about, the temple and the fig tree together. The fig tree was cursed for its fruitlessness. You could say for its hypocrisy. The temple, he went and cleansed the temple because of its fruitlessness, because of its hypocrisy. Both of these same things saying, look, we're alive and we're well and we're producing fruits, but an inspection couldn't hold up. They lacked any spirituality in the temple. It was not a house of prayer. It was a house of robbers. So Jesus calls them both out. He's not afraid to call out hypocrisy. He's not afraid to call out fruitlessness. So this, this example, though, of, of calling out the temple would have been deeply troubling to the Jews and deeply troubling to the Jewish disciples. This is, this is Yahweh's, a symbol of his presence in the world. This is the Lord dwelling on the world. And now you're saying that it's fruitless? Now you're saying you have to call it out and flip tables and call out the leaders of this temple? Right? Would have been troubling. We've been following Jesus on this march to Jerusalem since early in Mark 8. And he's been intentional and he's walking towards Jerusalem. And he keeps telling the disciples what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And he keeps telling them because they don't quite get it yet. Right? He keeps telling them that he's going to die. He's telling them that the temple is going to be destroyed. Right? That the, that the metaphorical temple in himself was going to be destroyed. Right? And now he's telling them, don't have faith in the physical temple. Have faith in God. The temple should not have been where hope was placed, right? Because what happened? It failed, right? Sin took over. Greed took over. Pride took over. The temple failed. Have faith in God. Yes, the temple is corrupt and will be gone. And it was shortly after Jesus' death, AD 70. The temple will be gone. 
the tree is destroyed. But have faith in God. Jesus is laying out what it looks like to rid ourselves of false religion and to pursue true faith. We see that in 23 and 24. There's a command to pray in faith, even for the impossible. See, faith is the fruit of God in us, produced by the work of God alone. Prayer is a confession of our faith and utter dependence for God to work. If it is indeed God that is doing the work, then the only limitation is the sovereignty of God. Right? If God is doing the work when we pray, we are only limited by what he can do. So why nothing is impossible. Move a mountain, sure. Right? If it's God doing the work. There's a danger when we read these verses as well. Unfortunately, these verses have been lifted out of context by many. Pray for anything you want. Health, wealth, happiness. It's yours. What does it say? It says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if anyone has anything against you, has anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses, right? It's this, you could take that verse by itself and say, man, anything I pray for will be granted to me? That sounds nice. Maybe I need a Ferrari or maybe I need a new house or maybe I need this or that, right? But we can't do that with Scripture. That's not how you use Scripture. You can't take a verse and start a theology. Right? We have all of Scripture to explain to us what prayer is and how God works. And it's not like a blue magic genie where you rub the lamp you forgive your brother, and you get the new thing that you wanted. Right? That's not what we're saying. Sproul had this helpful example of how this isn't true, that by itself, taken out of context, it doesn't fit the rest of Scripture. Right? He brings up the example of Jesus praying in Gethsemane. Jesus, one of perfect faith, one of perfect obedience, his own son, on his knees, sweating blood, and Gethsemane says, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, does the fact that Jesus went to the cross the next day mean the father did not answer him? No. His answer was no. He answered him no. It was not possible, right? But Jesus also prayed, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' response was this, if you say no to my request, I say yes to what you want me to do. That is the prayer of faith. That is trusting in God. Right? He answers. It just may not be the answer that we want to hear. We see in verse 25 this, this what looks like a, a tag put on here about forgiveness, right? It says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is 
your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And again, this is not a recipe, right? This doesn't mean that if we forgive, we get what we want when we ask in prayer. I think the best explanation for the inclusion of this is is found in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew, in 18:21 through 35. There was a a servant who came to his master and he had a great debt, a very large debt, a debt he could not pay ever. And he approached his master and his master in grace and kindness forgave him of his debt. And this very same servant went out to one of his servants who owed him a much, much smaller debt and demanded that day that he be paid. You see, the servant who was forgiven much didn't understand grace. The servant who was forgiven much didn't understand mercy. And if we come to the Lord in prayer and we are withholding forgiveness from our brothers, if we are withholding forgiveness from someone who has asked us for it, we don't understand what we have been given. We don't understand the debt that we have had erased. We don't understand the grace and mercy of God. And it's important that we understand that when we come to the Father. It's important that we know what has been granted to us. I recently saw a uh, beautiful example of, of faith and prayer it was the story of Corey Ten Boom. I know many of you know that name. She was a Nazi uh, concentration camp survivor in World War II and went through a, a very difficult time, as many people did. And saw her, even her sister die in this camp, and many, many people die in this camp. And she was giving a, a talk at a church in Germany in, in 1947, shortly after World War II, and in the crowd was one of the guards one of the guards from her very camp, one of the guards who viciously mocked and beat women in the showers, one of the guards who she knows was vengeful and spiteful and hateful. And she got done with her talk, and this guard walked up to her, and she saw him walking up. And he walked up to her, and he stuck out his hand, and he said, I've, I have found Christ, and Christ has found me, and I am a new man and I am a Christian. Can you forgive me? This is her words from a short text. It says, she wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. Standing there before the SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of will, not an emotion. And she prayed, Jesus, help me. And she stuck her hand out, an act of faith. Everything in her said, I can't, I won't. A prayer and an act of faith, and she stuck her hand out. She said, I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling, Lord. And she stuck her hand out, and it says, And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, spreading into our joint hands. And the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. This was not Corey Ten Boom, and she'd be the first to tell you. This was the work of Christ. This is faith. This is prayer. This is forgiveness. That is a work of Christ. 
This is faith in answer to an impossible prayer. How could you possibly forgive this man? How could you possibly even shake his hand? This terrible man. It goes back with, with God. All things are possible, right? We can pray for the impossible because it is him doing the work. This is true faith instead of false religion. So we look at this story. We look at this whole story. We look at the temple surrounding the story, or the, the fig tree surrounding the story of the temple. And again, we may be thinking of Jesus as judge makes us uncomfortable. We like to think of Jesus as the lamb. Jesus cursing fig trees and flipping tables makes us uneasy. If we ignore it, though, we ignore it at great peril. So what do we do with it? What does this mean for us? What does this incident in the temple mean for us? I think there's several things we can take away. There's a warning against false religion here. There's a warning against hypocrisy. There's a warning against fruitlessness. Personally, what does that look like personally? Right? Are, we, are we so busy? Are we making so much noise? There's so much chaos in our lives. It's impossible to pray. How do we bear fruit when we're so busy that we, we, can't, we can't do what we're supposed to do? Are we preoccupied with what we think Jesus was about or is about? Right? They, they thought Jesus was going to clear the temple of the Gentiles. Jesus' whole intention was to bring the Gentiles into the race, into his people. Right? Are we operating without faith? There was a system in place to provide for the provide for the temple. There was a system in place to provide. They were supposed to take in a financial, quite a hefty financial income every year, right? But it wasn't enough. They wanted more. $50 times 2 million people in a year, it's, it's a lot of money, right? But it wasn't enough. Personally, are we, are we worried about looking good from a distance? Right? Are we worried about putting up a front what, does, what do we look like? What do people think of us? When we should be more worried about what does a closer inspection bear? What does it look like when we pray for the Holy Spirit to search our heart? What is revealed? We keep our guard up, right? Who are we, who are we keeping out of our court of the Gentiles? Who are we inviting into the place for outsiders? Do we have a place for outsiders in our lives? Do we have a place for non-Christians amongst us, right? Are we eating dinner with them? Are we worshiping with them? Are they seeing us pray? Are they invited to see God through us? We take all those same questions and we ask them of the church as well, right? This church, our church, every church, right? Are we busy? Are we worried about what we look like? Do we have space for outsiders? Are we living in hypocrisy? Right? We see Jesus is very serious about this. He takes it extremely seriously. John 15, 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. Not pleasant. Matthew 3.10, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Jesus is serious about this. Jeremiah 8.3 speaks of hypocrisy. How can you claim we are wise? The law of the Lord is with us. In fact, the lying pen of scribes has pronounced falsehood. The wise will be put to shame and they will dismayed and snarled. They have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have really from prophet to priest? Everyone deals falsely. They have treated superficially the brokenness of my dear people, claiming peace, peace when there is no peace. Hypocrisy is serious. Fruitlessness is serious. So we see these warnings, serious warnings. Who wants to be cut down and thrown into a fire? right? Scary stuff. What's our natural inclination? Well, we need to get busy. We need to, we need to get some fruit. How do we get fruit? Staple on some apples, right? Put some miracle grow on. We need to get this fruit thing going. Maybe we should start a new program. Sunday nights, we could have a fruit program at church. How to grow fruit in 30 minutes or less, right? Sounds good. We need to remember, though, Peter walked up and he said, look at this dead tree. Jesus said, have faith in God, right? Have faith, pray, forgive. These were the commands. Not, you better go get busy making fruit, right? The same section that had the warnings, John 15, 1 through 8 has our answer. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches who abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Right, how do we bear fruit? Not work real hard, not programs. What is our job in this text that we just read? It is to abide. Our job is to abide. And even that is a gift granted to us by the Lord. He grants us the ability to abide in him. He will dress the vines. He will produce the fruit. He will do what is required. Think of fruit. I often think of singing the fruits of the spirit with the kids down the hall. They love that silly song that they want to sing faster and faster all the time. Right? And it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right? These, are, these are the fruit of the Spirit. These are not the fruit of me trying to work real hard. These are not the fruit of someone who has their life all together. A mature Christian who, who really has figured it all out. This is the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit in us, it is that who provides us fruit. Even with that in mind, it's easy to slip into the fruit inspection business, right? Jesus says we need fruit. If we don't have fruit, we're going to get burned in the fire. How much fruit do I need? How much fruit does James have? 
right? How much fruit do my kids have? Do they have enough? Maybe I've seen an apple, maybe, maybe a strawberry, right? What, what is the fruit? Is there a litmus test? Is there a number? It's a scary thing, right? Because Jesus is serious. The warnings are real, right? And we get into this, this idea and we start questioning salvation and we, we work, work ourselves into a frenzy when we start being fruit inspectors. I'll give you some assurance though. If you're worried about how much fruit you have, that's fruit. If you feel conviction about sin, that's fruit. If you find yourself repenting daily of your sin, that's beautiful fruit, right? Fruit is also being kind and reaching out and expressing all the fruits of the Spirit through our lives. But sometimes fruit doesn't look like that. Sometimes fruit looks like the small stuff and the hard stuff and the stuff we cry about, right? Fruit isn't always sweet and pleasant. So as we look for fruit, don't forget, fruit isn't always sweet. And fruit is produced not by us. It's produced by Christ. And if he begins fruit in us, he's going to bring it to completions. Philippians 1.6 says this, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is Christ who begins the good work. It is Christ that gives us any fruit. And it is Christ that will dress the vine and produce the fruit that is required in us. He will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. We want it on completion on Tuesday. Sometimes we want to see fruit in a week from now. Fruit growing is a lifelong process. Sanctification takes your whole life. It's completed on the day of Christ Jesus. That's when we'll see it completed. But there still is a warning. If you're here or you're hanging around Christians and you're looking busy and you're practicing looking religious, maybe you're even serving, maybe you're not, and there is no actual fruit, there is no conviction of sin, there is no repentance, right? There's nothing going on. I would warn you, you are practicing a false religion. I would warn you, you are in danger of being thrown into the fire. Christ is serious. If you find yourself with no fruit, no struggle, right? That, be careful. Talk to a brother. Or talk to someone here. But if you find yourself in that area, there's a severe warning of what's to come. And it's not good. I would urge you, as Scripture does, that today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be serious because Christ is serious. God is serious. There is a lion coming with a sword. And he is serious. There's good news. I wouldn't want to close on that. There's good news. We were all fruitless, dead branches, worthy of being thrown into the fire. All of us, each of us, no matter where we are now, by grace through faith in Christ, we've been grafted into the vine, right? That he produces work in us, that he's prepared in advance good works for us, that he's given us fruit. 
that through his death and resurrection, Christ has become a better temple, a temple without division. The Holy of Holies isn't walled off anymore. We have access to the Father. The Gentiles are counted as sons and daughters now. He has restored relationship with each other and with himself and with God. We're no longer outsiders stuck in the court. We have a perfect court now, and it's him. All of this is a gift of God freely given to us. We're called to abide in him and his word in us. And those are gifts of grace to us. God saw fit to walk into the court of Gentiles and fight for the right of outsiders. This is good news, church. We're not the Jewish chosen race that came up from the time of the Old Testament. We were outsiders. And now we're sons and daughters. He's given us home. We were once far off and he's called us near. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you. Lord, and that's not enough. I thank you that you have replaced a broken physical temple. Thank you that you've torn the veil that restricted us from access to the Father. You have provided a way. I thank you that it is you who produces fruit in us. Help us have assurance in that. Help us find joy in that. I do pray that if there are those here today that look like they should have fruit, or maybe they don't, that you would work, or that you would do what only you could do, that you would rescue, that you would save, that you would take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. They would know that we all would know what it is to bear your fruit, to have the assurance of a perfect temple, Lord, to have your spirit in us, Lord, that you would grant that mercy and that grace. God, continue to be with us today. We pray these things in your name. Amen.